Hello, purveyors of ponies, handlers of horses, and buffers of mystery everywhere. Welcome to this week's episode of Horse Mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. My name's Lisa Williamson. And dear, on this episode, we are uh, tackling an episode called Toxic. Yes, I remembered. Because <laughs> of the uh, Britney Spears song, of course. Right. And that's the main connection, I believe, for this week's show as well. So we're going to get a lot of Britney Spears, everyone. I hope you're looking forward to it. Lisa is a huge fan. But before we get there, what do we do now, dear? Horse bits. We're going to do horse bits. That's right. So I hadn't thought about this at all, so I'm just going to have to really wing it here. Unlike every other episode, right? <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> this week, I, I think we should talk about... What should you talk about? Um, boy, dealer's choice here. Let's talk about let's talk about the uh, what is it now? It's the part of the horse that allows him to sw- sleep standing up. I find that rather interesting. Oh, what is that the called again? Reciprocating apparatus. This reciprocating apparatus. People probably don't realize that horses have a special an- anatomical feature that allows them to sleep standing up. Mm-hmm. Maybe talk about that. Okay, I think if you had asked me this question 20 years ago, I could have talked about it a lot more eloquently and knowledgeably. Um, I did. Sorry I didn't catch you 20 years ago with the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. I did take a university class, which you took as well. And I remember this was one of the questions on the final exam. Okay. But yeah, at that point, at that time, I, I got it, but I don't know right now. So yeah, basically a horse can sleep standing up and they're just sort of dozing. It's not... A full deep sleep. Horses actually do have to lay down to sleep deeply, but they only need to do that for about 20 minutes a day. Okay. Uh, but the rest of the time, they can just sort of have little cat naps, doze. And and so they have this basically like a, a locking apparatus, which is on their, on their legs. And I can't even remember. I think it has to do with the stifle, but it must be on the knee too. I don't know. It's just the the tendons in the front and the yeah. tendons in the back, and they buffer each other, for lack of a better word, and it locks the horse's legs so they don't bend. Yeah. Having said that, some horses actually suffer from narcolepsy. Okay. Um, thoroughbreds and Shetland ponies in particular. Genetically, it runs in those breeds, but there's lots of other breeds I've encountered Many other horses that have narcolepsy. That's weird. So Shetland ponies and thoroughbreds. And thoroughbreds. Are they know. related in some no, way? I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think, think so. that closely, but yeah. um, who knows why. Maybe thoroughbreds are very kind of inbred or linebred here in North America anyway. So and maybe maybe Shetland ponies are as well. Possibly, so. possibly. But like I said, the horses that I've met that have had narcolepsy have been a variety of different breeds. But yeah, with narcolepsy, as with squirrels you can look up on youtube narcoleptic squirrels and okay. it's very hilarious um <laughs> narcoleptic dogs as well okay. on youtube yeah but to, yeah basically it's when the pleasure centers of the brain get kind of stimulated and so when the in a, in a mild way so typically with horses it's not when they're being ridden fortunately that they fall asleep and fall down but when they're standing around they're either being groomed by their owner or mutual grooming Let's say their friend is just kind of chewing on their their shoulder, which they like, mm-hmm. or if they're eating. So those are times, or just in the paddock with their friends, yeah. standing around very relaxed, sleeping, and then often they'll just, their knees will buckle and they'll either fall over or fall down, or sometimes they catch themselves before they completely fall. Yeah. Um, but it is something that, yeah, they can injure themselves, they can mm-hmm. injure others, so it is a, a hazard. Yeah. 
which doesn't really answer your question about the reciprocating apparatus, but at the very least, I remember the name of it, so I got to give you points for that. <laughs> I did give you points for that. Yeah, I can't quite remember how it works either. I do know that there is uh, some sort of a, I believe it's like some sort of ligament that's involved mm-hmm. that does actual like it and I see somehow locks it. two two bones together or something oh, like that, yeah. like and yeah, allows the horse to to maintain an upright posture while while dozing. It's obviously mm-hmm. yeah, not a full full on sleep, right. which is interesting because you don't often see horses lying down in the field. No, that's because they don't really have to. They do like to lay down um, like on a sunny day yeah. often and just yeah. sort of oh, sun that's, themselves that's and true. fall asleep. Yeah. But typically, if you see a group of horses. Sleeping in a field, you'll have one who's standing, mm. and they're the sentry. Sure, so sure. Even though horses aren't wild anymore, they still, you know, have that role in yeah, their yeah. herd this, dynamic. Sure, sure. One person is always on watch, or horse rather, not person. <laughs> on guard. Mm-hmm. And if you walk up to him, he won't he won't change his expression at all. He'll maintain a completely stoic, mm-hmm. you know, impassive face yep. to you. You know. And his little beef eater hat. <laughs> he's wearing a tall, fuzzy cap as well. That's right. I don't think he's a beef eater because that's it? the flat caps, right? Oh, I don't know. I thought that tall one was still the beef eater. Don't know. I don't think so, but I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I'm no royal watcher. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome for this week's horse bits. Now let's uh, go to our main story of the week, and that is a little tale you're calling toxic. You didn't say it quite right. Well, I can't remember how Brittany says it. <laughs> and I would never try to say it like Brittany. No, I just want you to say it more like toxic. March 19th, 1969. What were you doing? March 16th, 1969? March 19th, 1969. Oh, well, I would have told you the 16th, but the 19th is a little bit more of a blur to me. <laughs> I was, what, three years old then? Yeah. Eh, most likely toddling about. Probably not quite speaking yet. I was, I was a late speaker. Hmm. Making up for it now. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Don't worry, I made up for it then. Yeah. Okay, so place was Luxurious River Oaks, which is an exclusive enclave of large estates and mansions in the oil boom town of Houston, Texas. Hmm. Uh, 38-year-old Joan Robinson Hill, who's a married mother of one, had just spent the week entertaining Dallas-area horse show friends Diane Setgast and Eunice Woolen in the Kirby Lane mansion she shared with her husband of 12 years, plastic surgeon Dr. John Hill. <laughs> so Houston, I guess Houston is like an oil town, right? So there's mm-hmm. a lot of money from yeah. oil flowing around. Yeah. Money enough to get plastic surgery, apparently. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there seemed to be a lot of plastic surgeons, even back then. In 1969, yeah, it seems weird that there were plastic surgeons then. But I guess people wanted whatever then. Mm-hmm. Look younger? Yeah, I guess so. You don't actually look younger. Look more smooth? <laughs> yeah, pointy. <laughs> so on Saturday, March 15th, Diane and Eunice had recalled eating a dessert with a couple, but both had a strange feeling about the way in which the food was served. Oh. Joan's husband, John, had brought home pastries, but instead of allowing the women to choose their own dessert... John dictated who would eat which one, and he refused to let his wife switch. Joan was served a chocolate eclair, John had a cream puff, and the two guests each had a tart of a different flavor. So the morning after this dinner, uh, Joan was sick. She had flu-like symptoms that included fever, (coughs) vomiting, nausea, and diarrhea. This guy could have done a better job of poisoning his wife. That's all I'm going to say right now. Yeah, don't do it when you've got guests. 
Um, <laughs> Nobody's so obvious about it. No, 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 this is for you. <laughs> yeah, I insist. <laughs> the couple's two visitors returned home to Dallas the following day. Joan assured them that she would be fine, but in actual fact, she was never able to get out of bed unassisted again. Huh. So while she was ill, Joan told her father and others that John was taking excellent care of her. He was taking daily urine samples for testing and was injecting her twice daily with a vitamin cocktail. Oh, boy. <laughs> you're, you're now an expert in murders? <laughs> I guess I am. <laughs> well, it's such an obvious yeah, one. Could this guy be more obvious? <laughs> Did he have like a little card in his hat that said murderer? <laughs> so on the morning of Tuesday, March 18th, 1969, the family's maid found Joan lying in bed on top of diarrhea-soaked pads. Oh, dear. Joan was unable to uh, stand or, w or be able to walk to the bathroom, and John told the maid, clean up Joan's mess, then he left for work. Huh. So, worried that Joan was gravely ill. I mean, it could be worse for Joan. She might have remained married to this man. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so worried that Joan was gravely ill, the maid later called John at work and also phoned Rhea Robinson, Joan's mother, at her nearby home, but was unable to connect with either immediately. Mm. Eventually, John returned home just before Rhea showed up to check on Joan. Rhea found John standing at the end of Joan's bed, staring dispassionately at her. He seemed unconcerned about Joan's condition. Yeah. John then insisted that Joan get up and walk down the stairs on her own although she was barely able to stand. Hmm. So accompanied by Rhea, John then drove not to the nearest hospital, nor to the nearby famous Houston Medical Center, <laughs> but to the newly established Sharpstown Hospital, which was 45 minutes away. During the drive to Sharpstown, Joan's mother Rhea recalled John, in quotes, drove like a snail. <laughs> so John later stated that he took his wife to this new but very small and out-of-the-way suburban hospital that lacked an emergency room or an intensive care unit because he had a minor financial stake in it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Murderer and a Scrooge. Yeah. So, additionally, John had claimed Sharpstown was geared up to treat Joan, and again, geared up in quotation marks, mm -hmm. but when the group arrived, no one had received a heads up that they were coming. So at Sharpstown, Joan Robinson Hill was admitted with a blood pressure reading of 60 over 40. So 120 over 80 would be normal. So that's half of what it yeah. should be. And treatment was started for her low blood pressure and infection and the uncontrollable diarrhea. So at 3.55 a.m. on March 19, 1969, 15 hours after being admitted, Joan suddenly sat up, screamed, John! and vomited a large amount of blood, then oh. fell back onto the bed dead. Oh, my God. So John was asleep in another part of the hospital as Joan lay dying. Upon being told that his wife had <coughs> passed, his cries were so loud that they were heard by patients on the second floor of the building. He sat in her room, moaning, no, no, no. John then asked someone to call a friend who lived nearby. The friend, Dr. Jim Oates, knew John both professionally and through their mutual love of music. Dr. Oates' wife, Dottie, was a nurse, an acquaintance of the Hills. The Oates had just seen the Hills five days earlier at Houston's annual Wild Game Dinner. Dottie Oates was almost unable to recognize Joan due to the gross edema and extensive discoloration caused by ruptured superficial blood vessels. <laughs> Finding Joan's body covered in all the blood that had gushed from her mouth just before she died, 
Dottie then cleaned up Joan and prepared her for the undertakers. Because Joan had died within 24 hours of being admitted to the hospital, there should have been an automatic autopsy. Contrary to state laws requiring an autopsy in such a situation, however, the hospital released Joan's body to a funeral home. At the funeral home, Joan's blood was removed and washed down the drain, carrying with it whatever killed her. The immediate embalming before any examination later hindered the ability of the pathologist to determine an accurate cause of death. Wow. Yeah. So the hospital was part of this too. They were, yeah. (laughs) Whether they did it on purpose or not, or just were dumb, or just were intimidated by this fancy doctor, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, they seemed to just go along with whatever he said, but so did his friends, who should have known better. You'd think, both of them being medical professionals. Yeah. Yeah. So Joan Olive Robinson was born on February 6, 1931, to an unwed mother, and then immediately placed in an orphanage to be given up for adoption. <laughs> she was adopted as an infant by millionaire oilman Ashton, or Ash, Robinson, and his wife, Rhea. Unsubstantiated rumors were that Robinson had either gotten his secretary pregnant or paid a young woman to have his baby, then talked the Baron Rhea into adopting the baby girl. Regardless, both parents doted on their adopted daughter, who wanted for nothing. Hmm. So Joan was both a natural beauty and an athlete. She was also a popular society girl and socialite with many connections. She knew everyone worth knowing in Houston, Texas during the 1950s and 60s. In her teens and 20s, Joan was the belle of every Houston ball. Jonah developed a passion for horses at an early age. She began riding at three, then won her first ribbon, a third place, at the age of five. She continued to compete. What did she uh, uh, Saddlebreds, actually. Oh, saddlebreds, yeah. okay. I don't know if she was doing saddlebreds back when she was little, but uh-huh. that's what she ended up doing later. I see. So she continued to compete regularly, typically picking up first or second place and, ribbons. Sorry, what are saddlebreds? Uh, saddlebred is a breed that was invented for, like, plantations in the south sort okay. of like tennessee walkers saddlebreds um someone i used to work for mr brass he called them high steppers they're yep. the horses that really pick mm-hmm. their knees up yep. um have very uphill like neck structure as well but a very smooth gait they are a gated horse yep. so they will have in addition to walk tart canter and gallop they have other paces like rack and stuff like that yep. um and they're the ones like the guy from Star Trek, what's his name? William Shatner? William Shatner, he, yeah, he showed mm, uh, American yeah. Saddlebreds as well, but they have the great big heavy shoes on them. Yes, to help. There's a lot of... To help with the uh, the picking up. Yes, unethical aspect. things <laughs> showing Saddlebreds, but that's not even part of this story. It's <laughs> a <laughs> so whole other kind of worms. Yes. Okay, so she continued to compete regularly, typically typically picking up first or second place ribbons in most of the competitions she entered between 1938 and 1945. So that was over the course of her junior riding career. (laughs) As she moved into adulthood, Joan started judging horse shows and again specializing in American saddlebreds. As a competitor, she was an excellent horsewoman who earned many trophies and medals at various major horse shows around the Houston area. And she also brought home some national championships. Joan's riding skills were so extraordinary that a reporter was once moved to write that his goose pimples get goose pimples while witnessing her riding in competitions. 
It still blows my mind that once upon a time there were people reporting on people, you know, like this is saddlebred. Mm-hmm. It's not even horse racing. It's not something like that had like a sporty element to it that, you know, people flocked to see at that time. This is like horse shows. Well, I think... If I, I guess think, it was kind of a combination of society pages, Yes, that's, that's what it was. I think it was the society pages, so the horse shows were part of that. And often, the horse shows at that time, it wouldn't necessarily be, I wouldn't think, a dedicated saddlebred show. You'd have a great big show, and you'd have Shetland ponies, and saddlebreds, and hunters, and dressage, and yeah. all the different sort of horses that would be performing, and even the heavy horses, etc., kind of like our PNE used to be. Yeah. Uh, Royal Winter Fair still is, but yeah, all the different breeds. So yeah, if you wanted to go and see people going off to the Olympics, they would probably be there, but yeah, all these society people would be out there with their various pets and yeah, projects, <laughs> etc. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Joan had a beautiful pearl gray saddle suit made that matched the coat of her champion American saddlebred mare, beloved Belinda. <laughs> Joan also started the fad of wearing a pale colored fedora that complemented rather than matched her suit, as well as starting the fashion of wearing a light colored rather than dark suit. So after high school, Joan went off to Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri, where she began acting in amateur productions. She was a very, very beautiful girl. Yeah. Very, very pretty. So she ended up catching the eye of a Hollywood talent scout working for MGM. The scout offered Joan a screen test, but her overprotective father refused to let her go to Hollywood. He was concerned about predatory types at the studio who might take advantage of young women. Sure. Mirror off to, to a plastic surgeon. That's way better. <laughs> yeah. So when Joan was at college, Ash bought an apartment for her to live in, and he installed his wife there to keep an eye on her. But by the age of... <laughs> Could have done that in Hollywood, but anyway. Yeah, I know. By the age of 20, Joan had already been married twice and divorced. Okay. Headstrong. Yes, I think so. So her first marriage was to a Navy pilot, Spike Benton. And then she immediately moved on to marry a New Orleans lawyer and longtime friend, Cecil Burgrass. Neither marriage lasted much more than six months, and neither had received the blessing of Joan's father. So I didn't, I wasn't able to find out anything more about these guys and why the marriages didn't work, but Hmm. whatever. They were all young by the sound of it, or she was anyways. Joan's interest in horses followed her through college. So in addition to her mare, beloved Belinda, who she rode through the 50s and into the 60s, Joan was well known for her other saddlebred, Precious Possession. When Joan <laughs> retired, beloved Belinda at Houston... Were all, were all her uh, horses in form of alliteration? I think so, okay. yeah. So when she retired, beloved Belinda at Houston's Pin Oak Charity Horse Show, yeah. amidst great fanfare, and that's where that uh, magazine article saying that the goose pimples got goose pimples okay, came from. Okay. The pair had amassed 86 blue ribbons and four five-gated world championship titles in the amateur division. (laughs) So in adulthood, Joan ran Chatsworth Stables, a breeding farm and lesson barn that her father purchased for her. Then at a party one night in 1957, Joan met John Hill, a handsome young medical student. It was said later that John did most of the pursuing in the relationship. Quickly, the two became inseparable, and they were married in a big, flashy Texas wedding on September 28, 1957, despite Ash Robinson's protest about Joan's choice of husband. (laughs) But the lavish wedding was also done on Ash's dollar. 
The groom was described by the Houston Chronicle as one of the city's leading plastic surgeons. I see. So, who was John Hill? Well, played in the movie by Dane DeHaan. uh, There there was a made-for-TV movie. I can't remember who played him. Sam Elliott, maybe? I don't know. I can't remember. Seems odd casting. Yes. Anyway. Okay, so John Hill's childhood was very different from that of his affluent wife. He was born to poor farmers from Ed Couch, Texas, in Hidalgo County, near the Texas-Mexico border in the Rio Grande Valley. By all accounts, John had a very humble upbringing. He was the son of a henpecked father and Bible-thumping mother. (laughs) Joan's mother, Myra Hill, instilled a love of music in each of her children and installed in all three children a musical inclination. All were enrolled in piano lessons from an early age, and John, in particular, went on to become a multi-instrumentalist. John then graduated summa cum laude from the Abilene Christian College, at which point he proceeded to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. What's it called? Baylor. Oh, Baylor. Yes. Once John and Joan were married... I know it is a football university. Oh, really? Or college, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that was... Or maybe, maybe basketball. I don't know. Anyway, they, are, they do show up in the NCAA. <laughs> so once John and Joan were married, it was clear that Ash didn't much like his latest son-in-law. By the same token, John's religious mother was less than enamored with her twice-divorced daughter-in-law. <laughs> yeah. For the first six years of their marriage, John and Joan lived with her parents while John completed his residency at Herman Hospital in Houston. <laughs> More alliteration. Yeah, I was going to say, Herman Hospital, is that her fourth horse? (laughs) Uh, John did not have much money, so Ash agreed to pay for all the couple's expenses until John became a doctor. (laughs) During his residency, Hill accidentally performed, perforated rather, performed. (laughs) (laughs) He perforated the bowel of a patient during surgery. Oh, no. But instead of repairing the damage, he just stitched the man up and... The patient ultimately died of peritonitis. Oh, this man was a sociopath. Mm-hmm. John was severely reprimanded and should have been dismissed from the program because his actions were deliberate. However, John was allowed to continue his residency. And you can maybe speculate because Ash was actually very wealthy and very powerful. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. possible that he stepped in. But there is nothing about that. But that would be my guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least the, the hint of it could be there. Mm-hmm. Even if he didn't actually say anything... Yes. Hill could have could have uh, made kind of veiled threats because mm-hmm. he sounds like a real creepazoid. Yeah. So realizing played by Dane DeHaan in the movie version. Okay. Uh, realizing there was a high amount of competition in cardiac surgery, John turned his sights to plastic surgery. So ultimately, in 1963, John was offered a partnership with well-known surgeon Nathan Roth upon completing his residency. That same year, John almost immediately found himself in trouble again <laughs> after leaving a drill bit embedded in a patient's face following a jaw repair. Oh my gosh. John did not disclose this information to his patient, but when his medical partner, Dr. Roth, learned about it, he'll apologize for his poor bedside manner, and obviously his mistake, yeah. and blamed his poor performance on emotional strain caused by his brother's recent sudden death. Hmm. The patient uh, bit her tongue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Dr. Julian Hill, who was John's brother, was gay and had overdosed on barbiturates in a a suicide Mm. around this time. 
So, although he was initially understanding, Hill's partner, Dr. Roth, eventually grew tired of Hill's many excuses and also of his constant requests to cover for him so he could perform in music recitals. <laughs> Dr. Roth dissolved the partnership in 1967. Oh. I think that was a smart move. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Dr. Roth not only found John reckless, he also considered him a, this is a, quote, a pretentious, status-seeking buffoon. <laughs> So, for example, John had begun collecting what he called art to decorate his office, but the two doctors had a difference of opinion on what constituted art. Roth had also observed that a lovely black-and-white photo of Joan on her horse Belinda was not hung, but instead was carelessly left on the floor, leaning against the wall. Hmm. Meanwhile, Ash was still funding Joan's horse shows and all of the young family's other expenses. Uh, it was in 1963 that Ash purchased Chatsworth Farm for Joan to run her equestrian business out of. Then, shortly after John went into partnership with Roth, the couple purchased a nondescript two-story house on MacArthur Drive, where they lived for the next three years. Ash also paid for this house in spite of John by this time quickly rising to be considered one of the Southwest top plastic surgeons with a reported annual income of about 150000 equivalent to 827000 today. So, how did this wonderful couple get into the situation? So, the, the Hill... Well, we're not really hearing much about her personality here, though. Like, no. Like he is obviously, like, to me, he sounds like a sociopath, mm-hmm. like a true, like, you know, he doesn't care. He's, yeah, he is just about, you know, whatever is best for him and and uh, not, not very good at it either. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like, uh, you know... Very entitled. Very entitled, but yeah. not entitled because he's not, didn't grow up with money. But what he is, is he's, he's, uh, I guess, striving, you know, he's mm-hmm. ambitious. He wants to rise in, in class yeah. at any cost, but he doesn't have the actual, like, talent or intelligence to do so. Mm-hmm. He's just merely coasting on other people's, uh, I guess, on his father-in-law's reputation for a lot yes. of this. But we don't really have much sense of what Joan is like. No, I mean, other than the fact that she loved horses and the fact that she had these sort of impulsive marriages yeah. and the fact that she was very, very, very beautiful. It didn't go into, like, mm-hmm. everything I read just didn't really go into it. Her parents loved her dearly. Yeah. They both did. They mm-hmm. had a super close relationship. Uh, obviously, they were they lived with the parents for the first seven years of yeah. their marriage. Yeah. But then it was like the parents were there at their place all the time. Sure. And... I don't know. I think, anyways, we'll read about their hear I mean, about their relationship a little bit more. Which sounds great, but I mean, it's probably terrible for 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 Hill to have the father-in-law, yeah. this hugely successful man, hanging mm-hmm. around all the yeah. time, and obviously a super competent person, someone who rose up through, at a time like he would have been, like, I don't know if it's totally accurate, but I think of like him rising up in the oil business, like, like during that whole like there will be blood kind of period of like, you know, everyone is like kind of racing around you know, screwing each other over to try to get their, you know, oil out of the ground, mm-hmm. you know, when you really had to, like, push and 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 strive and it's all about, like, who's the biggest he-man on the block to, to get... And uh, so, yeah, here's this guy who's, like, wildcatted his way into, yeah, into a I, fortune. And I think that's exactly who Ash is, and Ash is definitely a bigger character in this story than his daughter. Yeah. So... I think she was just overshadowed by those two men in her life. Yeah, 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 yeah. In spite of being, you know, 
very talented and very beautiful. Yeah, a great writer, but yeah. also she's running her own writing academy mm-hmm. as well. So she's obviously had, unless her dad's totally underwriting and a total uh, incompetence. But well, there was reference to it wasn't as successful as she okay. thought yeah. it was going to be. But in spite of that, it was her passion and mm-hmm. she devoted herself to it. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, there's something to that. Hmm. Um, anyway, but we will hear more about their relationship now. Okay. So, protective of his daughter, Ash had had a prenuptial agreement drawn up, which that's very early for a prenup, I think. Maybe not. No, I, I, I don't know. I guess not. Obviously yeah. obviously not. Yeah. Because anyway. I have heard of other prenups from that, that those time, okay. time periods. So. so, if John and jo- Joan and John divorced, then John was to get whatever he brought into the marriage, but nothing more. Hmm. So, Wait. There wasn't like some codicil that if she died, he, he got everything. I don't think so, no. That's a bad idea mm-hmm. in a will. Yeah. And if Joan should die mysteriously by spewing out blood, <laughs> then John gets all the money, yeah, all the property. So, John and Joan Hill became a regular part of Houston's social scene, but back home, led largely separate lives. People hmm. considered their relationship a mismatch. Joan was happy and open, while John was a complex individual <laughs> who appeared to be unhappy, and, like, always unhappy, and he was described by some as closed and overly private. <laughs> he suffered from depressive episodes and sudden rages. Yeah, he's a monster. Yeah. Joan's interests were focused on her writing uh, passions, uh, while John devoted his spare time to performing and listening to music, Rachmaninoff being his favorite composer. Okay, finally. I was wondering, uh, what kind of music was he... But I guess he's a plastic surgeon, so of course he'd be yeah. listening to mu- Rachmaninoff. Yeah. yeah. So did he play, you said he was multi-instrumentalist? Yeah, mainly piano, mm-hmm. Yeah, but other instruments That would well. put him in the Rachmaninoff league okay. there. So the couple had a son, Robert Ashton Hill, born June 14, 1960. Um, he was born during John's first year of residency. Joan hated being pregnant, did not enjoy the act of childbirth, and stated emphatically that, <laughs> Unlike she, all other women. Yeah, that she wouldn't be doing that again. Uh, Ash doted on his grandson, whom he immediately dubbed Boot, the same way he had doted on Joan. He paid for a diaper service, a private nurse, and provided anything else that was needed. Meanwhile, John's obsession with music continued, and he played in a number of orchestras. Joan spent all her time with her horses at the farm and at horse shows. The couple spent increasingly less time together. Hmm. By 1966... John was tired of their nondescript house and had found a sprawling southern-style mansion that was, in his opinion, fit for a person of his social status. (laughs) A clumsy plastic surgeon. Yeah. He convinced Joan they needed it. Hmm. The home was located at 1561 Kirby Drive in the upper-class neighborhood of River Oaks in Houston. It was built in 1935 and sat on a half-acre lot. Once again, Ash footed the bill and paid the $80,000 down payment on the home. However, Ash had misgivings about the place and considered it cursed. He felt the house had a dark history, as the previous owner had died of cancer in the master bedroom, while another couple who owned the home had become embroiled in a nasty divorce, which prompted one of them to attempt suicide at the house. (laughs) Ash was reluctant about the purchases, as he... Recognized it was John, not Joan, who was pushing for the house, but ultimately Joan wanted to please John, and Ash could never say no to his daughter. So a year after purchasing the Kirby Drive house, the business partnership between Roth and John was dissolved. 
John then established his own private practice. John was well aware of how much he leaned on his wealthy father-in-law to fund his lifestyle. (laughs) One colleague later recalled an incident in the mid-1960s in which John jokingly advised a group of interns that the best way to become successful was to marry a rich woman. (laughs) By 1967... Was he joking? Nope, I don't think so. While Ash was still paying the couple's living expenses, John started pouring all of his earnings into an extravagant music room addition to the sprawling mansion. (laughs) By the time the room was complete, it had cost a total of $100,000. What? Equivalent to $700,000 today. For a room? Yeah, one room. Well, it was all like soundproof and... Yeah. Yeah. So by this time, John was resentful and had become irritated by the Robinson family in general. (laughs) The financial contributions Ash continued to make to the household loomed over the prideful John. He longed to distance himself from the reality of his financial situation and his wife's family. (laughs) The couple's relationship soured. John became increasingly critical of his wife. He would complain about everything she did, from smoking to cursing to the way she smelled when she returned from the barn. He would tell her that she smelled like a goat. (laughs) Eventually, Joan discovered that John was having an affair and admitted to her mother that John had not touched her in eight months. Desperate to save her marriage, Joan embarked on a self-improvement program where she attempted to quit smoking and look more glamorous. (sighs) She changed her style of clothes and straightened her hair. She didn't need much help in the looks department, but it still wasn't enough for John. So John went out and rented an apartment, which he started to live in part-time. He then filed for divorce in the late summer of 1968. Around this time, John and Joan made an out-of-town trip to pick up Boot, who had been away at summer camp. There, John bumped into lovely three-time divorced Anne Fairchild Kurth and was immediately smitten. (laughs) The stunning dark-haired beauty was picking up her three sons, who she referred to as the brothers, at the camp. It turns out that not only was Anne a former school friend of Joan's, but she had also volunteered for a short time at the hospital where John had been an intern. Ah. He startled her when he told her that life had never been the same since she left the hospital. Anne and John embarked on a torrid affair. John was desperate to divorce Joan so he could marry Anne. Ash intervened, threatened to jerk the financial rug out from under his adulterous son-in-law. John was informed that he would lose his family, his home with his ostentatious music room, and everything else if he didn't work things out with Joan. Just before Christmas of 1968, John withdrew his divorce petition and went home to Joan, but it was a marriage in name only. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Meanwhile, Anne fumed, angry at what she considered to be a slight. Anne was extremely cunning and began tormenting John with threats of seeing other men, rendering him emotionally off balance. John would go to Anne and stay overnight with her, leaving Joan home alone. On Valentine's Day of 1969, John gave Anne candy, a bracelet, and cash. Joan received nothing. Now Joan was justifiably livid at John for staying out all night and also hurt that he had chosen someone else. She started sleeping in late, which concerned her maid Effie, as Joan was usually an early riser. It was likely she was suffering from depression. In mid-March 1969, John once again filed for divorce. So that brings us to where we started. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it just feels like this is like best for both of them. To divorce. To divorce, yeah. Back then, even though she was two times divorced, she wasn't two times divorced 
with a kid. With a kid, yeah. And I think yeah. that's part of it. So the par- her parents were, you know, obviously battling this whole, battling the idea of her, her parents were obviously battling the idea of her divorcing him because of that, do you think? I guess so, yeah. And maybe, who knows, maybe they saw all the money they'd poured into the family as an investment that was going bad or something. I don't know, with the dad <laughs> being that, that much of a businessman. I, maybe. I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard to imagine that. And I think her dad's probably a guy who, he never lost anything, mm. right? And mm-hmm. so if he decided he wanted something, he got it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it seemed like his the daughter tried to do everything to keep her husband. So yeah, yeah, really. I, yeah, I think she he probably saw that and was just trying to be supportive. Yeah, Would maybe be so. my guess, maybe but so. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Sad, anyway. It is, because yeah. uh, it doesn't turn out great. No, so let's, let's no. carry on. Okay, carry. so we'll carry on. So mid-March, the Hills hosted Joan's horsey friends, Diane and Eunice, who were visiting from Dallas for the week. Mm-hmm. So on the afternoon of Saturday, March 15th, Diane and Eunice had a conversation with Joan in which she told them that John had given her some kind of pill the previous night that knocked her out. <laughs> she spent most of the day in bed after being able to, unable to keep down her breakfast. Seemingly concerned, John said he would go out and get her some medicine. And then it was that night that he, he brought did the, the pastries as well. Poison so, bonbons. Yeah, on Monday, March 17th, Joan's condition had worsened, but she told her friends she would be fine after they left to return to Dallas. Mm-hmm. Joan became increasingly more ill and was very listless. Her father, mother, and John were all there waiting on her. John gave Joan a glass of orange juice that she threw up. Joan then continued vomiting throughout the evening. When Effie the maid asked John what was wrong, he replied that Joan had a virus. He then left for work. <laughs> So on the morning of Tuesday, March 18th, Effie found Joan in bed lying in soiled bedding. Joan had been too weak to walk to the bathroom and was lying in a pool of watery excrement. While trying to clean up the mess, Effie noticed that jo- Joan's face was turning blue. She unsuccessfully tried to get in touch with the Robinsons and Joan Hill, John Hill at his office. When Rhea arrived for a visit, she found Joan in bed, covered in her own vomit, while John stood dispassionately observing the scene. It's weird that no one knew how to call an ambulance. I know, so weird. Um, John then told his mother-in-law he thought Joan needed to go to the hospital. So, seemingly unfazed and unconcerned, John took his time getting Joan help. He refused to call an ambulance, and instead chose to drive her to the hospital 45 minutes away. There were several closer options. On arrival, the nurse took Joan's blood pressure, which again was 60 over 40. Uh, Joan's doctor initially thought she was suffering from a foodborne illness, but a second diagnosis led the doctor to believe she was in septic shock. (laughs) By 8 p.m., Joan was determined to be in severe kidney failure. Wow. Despite many attempts to treat her illness, Joan died in the early hours of March 19th, 1969. She died like Farlap. Yeah, very similar. Okay, first autopsy. They did an autopsy? They did. With what? Well, her body, but it gets crazy. 
Okay. So hang on to your hat. I um, will. I'm not even wearing one, and I'll still hang on to it. <laughs> so Texas state law at the time stated that for anyone who died in a hospital within 24 hours of admission, an autopsy was required before any embalming or burial could take place. That's a good law. Yeah. The law further stated that a cause of death had to be determined before any embalming or burial could take place. Otherwise, criminal penalties would ensue. Oh. The attending physician... But here's the thing. Those criminal penalties are way less than murder. Yes. Yeah. Murder penalties are a lot. Yeah. <laughs> In Texas, they're probably... That is true. So the attending physician, Dr. I'm just saying it was probably had the pub, probably had the ex- yeah. execution, capital... Yeah. What do they call it? Cal- Probably, capital yeah, punishment, capital, yeah. Yeah, capital punishment. So the attending physician, Dr. Bertineau, and his colleague, Dr. Lanza, had been called back to the hospital when Joan died. They spoke to John at that time about the legal need for an autopsy and called Dr. Arthur Morse, the hospital's pathologist, to start the process. John then chose to ignore this information and proceeded to ask his friend and colleague, Dr. Jim Oates, to contact a local funeral home to claim his wife's body. Wow. Less than four hours after her death, the funeral home removed Joan's body from the hospital. I think the funeral home would also know this rule, though. You would think so, yeah. They're also culpable. This is outrageous. Well, maybe they got paid. Within an hour after receiving the body, they had already begun the process of embalming Joan. So the hospital's pathologist, Dr. Arthur Morris, arrived at the funeral home at 10 a.m. to carry out the autopsy, only to find that the body had already been embalmed. Morris attempted to conduct an autopsy, but... His hands were tied. Joan's blood had been drained from her body and replaced with embalming fluid. Dr. Morris concluded his autopsy at 10.30 a.m. without finding any signs of what caused Joan's death, aside from noting a maroon coloration of her pancreas. He had little to go on, but offered an opinion that Joan may have died from pancreatitis. Two of Joan's friends went to the River Oaks home to pick out something for her to wear in her casket. The women chose a flashy gold sequined evening dress that Joan had impulsively purchased (laughs) after discovering her husband had bought a pair of lizard pumps and matching purse for Anne. One of the women called John and told him which outfit they had chosen and asked if he wanted her buried with any rings or other jewelry. He replied, no, the dress is enough. On Thursday... March 20th, 1969, Diane and Eunice, who had stayed with the Hills as house guests a week prior to her death, returned to Houston to attend Joan's funeral. Diane called on John to pay her respects. Upon arriving at the house, Diane found John upstairs in his music room with his son Robert and some friends, laughing at a Laurel and Hardy film. (laughs) Surprised that John did not appear to be grieving, Diane left in disgust, but was soon stopped by John. During the ensuing conversation, she expressed disbelief at the speed of her friend's death and asked John why, as a doctor, he had not been able to help Joan. John replied that he wanted to take his wife to the hospital, but Joan refused to go. (laughs) He said, you know what she was like about hospitals. Diane became suspicious as she did not believe her friend had any reservations about hospitals and very quickly went and voiced her concerns to Ash. So hearing what John had told Diane and learning of John's insistence that Joan eat that particular pastry was enough to convince Ash that the pastries were tainted. (laughs) He also knew plenty about the couple's rocky marriage. He was aware that the couple argued a lot and that John was annoyed that Joan spent so much time with her horses. He also knew that Joan objected to John's two primary pastimes, 
music, and women. <laughs> Ash was also well aware that his daughter was only 38 years old, otherwise fit and healthy, with no previously known illnesses. That SOB killed my Joan to be with another woman, Ash was heard to have stated on several occasions. Hmm. After hearing Dr. Morse's pronouncement that Joan had died from pancreatitis, Robinson had begun searching for second opinions. These other doctors advised him that pancreatitis was an unlikely cause of death. Then on the morning of Friday, March 21st, the day of Joan Robinson Hill's funeral, Ash visited the office of Assistant District Attorney Ian McMaster and accused John of murdering Joan. McMaster then asked the Harris County Medical Examiner to perform more tests prior to Joan's burial. So, the second autopsy. Yes. So, after listening to Ash's story, the DA agreed to look into it. He told Harris County Medical Examiner Joseph Jakimitz to go to the funeral home to examine the body. <laughs> The ME was instructed to stop the service if necessary. Oh. Jacometz telephoned the administrator of Sharpstown Hospital and pathologist Morse. He ordered the pathologist to hand over his preliminary report and any blood and urine specimens. The ME then drove to the funeral home to view the body, doing so as mourners began to arrive for the service, but he did not halt the proceedings. While awaiting the ME's results, Ash continued to gather evidence against his son-in-law. Mm. He assembled a team of well-respected doctors at his home to discuss the case. These doctors included his own GP, Dr. Ed Golden, as well as Dr. Grady Hallman. Robinson also got statements from people who were in the house that last week, including Jones houseguests Diane and Eunice and the Hills house staff Archie and Effie Green. Jacomet's autopsy report came out at the end of March. In it, he ruled out any poisoning and concluded, this is in quotes, It is my opinion, based upon a reasonable probability, that the cause of death is due to acute focal hepatitis, probably viral in origin, end quote. <laughs> As a result, ADA McMaster concluded that there was no case, but Ash refused to believe that no crime had been committed. He hired lawyer and former Harris County District Attorney Frank Briscoe. Frank Briscoe subsequently discusses the case with ADA McMaster. Neither was convinced that John had murdered his wife, but they felt that there was enough evidence to put the matter before a grand jury. They didn't think that he murdered his wife. They didn't no. hear the donut story? <laughs> yeah, I think just because there's no real evidence, unfortunately. Uh, maybe what they're saying is not that he was innocent, but that there's no way to pursue this because there's... Yeah. Because a corrupt hospital and then a, even more, a corrupt funeral home destroyed the evidence. Mm -hmm. Yes. My gosh. So, I know. Next chapter of our story, John remarries. Oh. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> so, many agreed with Ash that John had had a master plan. Once John had everything he wanted from Joan, following her death, he quickly and unemotionally moved on to the next phase of his life. John may have been a successful plastic surgeon, but everything he was and everything he owned, he owed to his dead wife and her family. Yeah. While Anne was also socially prominent, neither she nor her family had a fortune comparable to that of Ash. But on June 6, 1969, so just 
what, just over two months after the death of his previously healthy and active wife, Joan, Dr. John Hill married Anne Kurth. Anne that's a, bit, that's a little unseemly in its yes, speed. It is. I promise, dear, that if anything happens to you, I won't marry for at least four months. Four months, okay. Whew. <laughs> that's good. Oh, we've got it on record here. <laughs> Hold you to it. <laughs> so Anne and her three sons moved into the Kirby Lane home with John and Boot. Marriage to Anne at first seemed idyllic. John initially settled in well with his new wife and blended family. Anne allowed John to be the undisputed master of his River Oaks mansion. But John's change of attitude was short-lived. <laughs> he soon became frequently strange and moody and experienced fits of anger. According to Anne, during one of his tirades, he had gone through the house grabbing anything reminiscent of Joan. Trophies, photographs, and clothing were all burned in a huge bonfire in the backyard. Months later, John contacted his attorney, claiming it was Anne who had destroyed all all Joan's possessions. (laughs) Unfortunately, neither Anne nor John was known for their truthfulness. John's idiosyncrasies and intense passion for music were expressed during his manic swings. After marrying Anne, John began to play Rachmaninoff constantly. When in one of his petulant and withdrawn moods, John would lock himself in his music room and turn up the sound to deafening levels. He also had previously recorded some of his conversations with Joan, which he would play, trying to frighten Anne into believing that the mansion was haunted. Wow. Gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Before it was called gaslighting. Yeah, I guess, yeah. So in the meantime, Ash remained devastated by his daughter's death, frequently and openly accusing John of murder. (laughs) Ash was furious and vowed revenge against all parties involved in Joan's death. Good. No one doubted he was capable of making these threats come true. He swore a vendetta against John and Anne and hired a team of private detectives to keep John under surveillance. (laughs) In turn, did he burn down the hospital and the funeral home? I hope he did that too. No, I don't oh. think he did. But in turn, John Job hash, half done, Ash. Yeah, John refused to allow Boot to see his grandparents. However, <laughs> Anne did arrange a few surreptitious meetings. So that was nice. Yeah. Joan's death remained at the forefront of Houston gossip, and John and Anne were whispered about everywhere they went. John must have had a guilty conscience. He broke his collarbone after falling off some motor scooters they had bought for the boys, but he refused to go to the emergency room. According to Anne, John was afraid he might reveal the truth about Joan's death while under sedation. Later, when John offered to submit to a truth serum test over his wife's death, Anne saw him injecting himself with what she believed was a drug to counteract the effects of sodium pentothal. So any bliss the newly married couple felt was ultimately erased on the night of June 30th, 1969, less than a month after their wedding, when John and Anne drove past Chatsworth Farm. According to Anne, John said, there's where someone lived who doesn't live anymore. And he then admitted to Joan by, that he had killed Joan, he had admitted to Anne that he yeah. had killed Joan by injecting her with bacteria. He stated that she threw up everything but her toenails. John had successfully removed Joan from his life, and some believed she wasn't the first obstacle he had removed. According to Anne, who again, we've already stated she was a liar, um, (laughs) John also admitted to having been involved in his brother's suicide. Being gay, his brother Julian had proven to be an embarrassment to the social climbing Christian doctor, and also claimed that John was responsible for his own father's heart attack. 
She also claimed that he had admitted to dispatching at least two other people. Some suspected that John had killed an ex-boyfriend of Jones called Jack Ramsey. Ramsey was in excellent health when he checked into the hospital for an insurance physical, but didn't come out alive. So immediately following these startling confessions, according to Anne, on that same night, John attempted to kill her by crashing the passenger side of his Cadillac into a bridge railing. However, Anne was unharmed. So John allegedly took out a syringe and attempted to inject her with what she believed was a drug that would make it appear she had died in the accident. Fortunately, she evaded her husband. Then another car came along and John threw the syringe out the window. The Hill-Kirth romance had soured quickly and the couple divorced after a stormy nine months. That's so weird. Okay, that's fine. But... Like he didn't he just divorce what, his first wife? Yeah, why didn't he just do... Oh, anyway, go on. The third autopsy. Third autopsy? Yeah. So, Ash Robinson... Well, here, can I, can I okay, hope sure. and pray that good things come in threes? Yes, you can. Yeah. Okay, I didn't say they would, but... You oh, <laughs> I can't okay. Yes, that's true. So Ash Robinson was determined to hire the best pathologist in the United States to conduct another autopsy on his daughter. He found Dr. Milton Helpern, the chief medical examiner of New York City. Helpern came to Houston five months after Jones' death. An autopsy was also requested by a Harris County grand jury investigating the death of Joan. That autopsy was performed by a team of 10 doctors led by Galveston County's medical examiner, Dr. Robert Bucklin, and included Dr. Helpern, who is deputized as an acting Harris County medical examiner. On August 16, 1969, the day Joan was exhumed, thunder rumbled across the Houston area. (laughs) When the coffin was opened, Helpern exclaimed, There's dried mud inside this casket! Clearly, Joan had not been allowed to rest in peace. Someone had been in the casket. What? (laughs) The funeral home later informed the medical team that John had obtained an order to disinter his wife three days after her funeral. John claimed he wanted to retrieve a piece of jewelry that was buried with her. It should be noted that as a doctor, John would have known that exposing the corpse to air would hasten decomposition. Hmm. The medical team found Joan's features mostly intact, with the exception of the an abundant growth of black mold creeping over her face, torso, and one hand. Ugh. Her nose was beginning to crumble, and her fingers re- were dehydrated and mummified, which caused the nails to appear extra long. Helpern found nothing amiss related to the disinterment, but noted that Joan's stomach and its contents had never been removed and so had not been examined in the original autopsy. What? These idiots! <laughs> so outrageous. The pathologist also discovered that Joan's brain and heart were missing. <sighs> An embarrassed Dr. Morse then admitted to not returning Joan's organs prior to burial. For some reason, he had Joan's brain in the trunk of his car and was able to hand it over. <laughs> Sheepishly, I hope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Helpern examined Joan's body for seven and a half hours, and while he thought there might be traces of meningitis, he declined to state whether he thought this was a cause of Joan's death. Helpern then took the tissue samples back to New York for further testing. (laughs) Ultimately, the series of autopsies indicated that Joan had suffered a massive infection from an undetermined source, but because the body had been embalmed before an initial examination was conducted, an exact cause of death could not be determined. Hmm. 
the hospital and the Harris County Medical Examiner initially listed Joan's cause of death as hepatitis, but there were no typical signs of the disease, like jaundice noted. Medical test results were also not indicative of hepatitis. Dr. Buckland listed Joan's cause of death as bacterial meningitis with acute septicemia. Meanwhile, following the autopsy, Joseph Jakimitz issued a fresh report in which he observed, It is now my opinion that Joan Robinson Hill came to her death as a result of a fulminating infectious process, the specific nature of which is no longer determinable. He went on to recommend that the matter be investigated by a grand jury. So Dr. Milton Hepburn did not issue his report until April 1970, more than a year after Joan's death. Hepburn's report noted that John's treatment of his wife at home and the delay in seeking specialized medical attention at a hospital were factors in Joan's death. He also suggested that Hill might have been murdered via poison. Do you know what a grand jury is? Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> what is a grand jury? Well, as I understand it, it's a, it is a jury of peers, but who are act as a kind of a filter of what cases should go to trial. So if they feel like there's uh, evidence that warrants more further investigation or taking the case further into into trial, then they will recommend those those steps. You are correct. Thank you. Good. So yeah, it says a grand jury is a jury made up of a group of citizens who are empowered by law to conduct legal proceedings, investigate potential criminal conduct, and determine whether criminal charges should be brought. It sounds like a more interesting jury duty than actual trial jury. I think so. Yeah. Uh, So because of Ash's agitating his wealth and due to his standing in the community, he was able to influence enough people that John needed to be looked at for Joan's death. (laughs) With suspicions against John mounting in the Houston medical community that John had played a role in Joan's death, potential charges of murder were brought to the grand jury. John most likely would never have been faced would never have faced indictment if Anne hadn't come forward with her revelation. Ah. In response to the gossip, John contact, contacted Clyde Wilson, a private investigator who had previously worked for him. Wilson suggested that to clear his name, John should take a polygraph test. John decided instead to give a statement under the administration of sodium pentothal or truth serum. The drug was administered at Sharpstown Hospital by a neutral party, anesthesiologist Dr. Richard Smith, who had occasionally assisted Hill during surgery. John passed the exam, but ADA McMaster was suspicious that the drug had not worked properly because he felt that John's answers were too composed. Hmm. Briscoe asked the pathologist, Morse, whether it would be possible to inject someone with hepatitis. Morse felt this was unlikely, but offered the lawyer an alternate opinion about how Joan may have contracted the virus. He had learned that just prior to her death, Joan had eaten both shellfish and snails. Morse felt she could wow. have contracted hepatitis via this route. Ash then I thought according to the movie Spartacus, you can't have both shellfish and snails. What? That's just something in the movie. Oh. So Ash then petitioned... If you know, you know, folks. Okay. (laughs) Ash then petitioned John to give permission for Joan's body to be exhumed for another autopsy. John refused. The grand jury to examine the case retired without indicting John. Ash then urged Briscoe to pressure the DA to order an exhumation, (laughs) then fired Briscoe when he refused. 
Next, Ash retained the services of the law firm Vincent and Elkins. District Attorney Carol Vance then put the case before a second grand jury to see if they would order an exhumation. When the exhumation was approved, John hired his own lawyer, Don Fullenweeder, who asked his partner, respected defense attorney Richard Haynes, to represent John. John also initiated divorce proceedings with Anne against the advice of his defense attorney, who told him that if he and Anne remained married, she could not testify against him. Then, in February of 1970, the case was presented to a third grand jury. Sitting on the grand jury was Cecil Haddon, a prominent Houston businessman who was a close friend and associate of Ash. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Stacked. Yeah. On March 12, 1970, the third grand jury heard testimony from Anne, who was less than 24 hours divorced from John. <laughs> Not biased. She told them that John had confessed to killing his wife and had also tried to kill Anne on three occasions. She also told them that the physician had medicated himself with an antidote to the sodium pentothal prior to the test, a claim anesthesiologist Richard Smith dismissed as implausible. (laughs) Dr. Milton Halpern, who had conducted a third autopsy, was preparing his report as the grand jury neared the end of its 90-day term, but wasn't able to complete it in time for his findings to be heard by the grand jury. Haddon suggested that Halpern present his conclusions in person. District Judge Wendell Odom agreed, and Halpern presented his findings in April of 1970. In response to Halpern's presentation, Haynes suggested that John testify before the grand jury, but the evidence John gave contradicted that given by others involved in the case. (laughs) Also, his cool and aloof manner convinced ADA McMaster and his fellow ADA Ernie Ernst, that Hill had murdered his wife. Unfortunately, in spite of their dislike of John, it was clear that there was not enough evidence to indict him for murder. After some research, Ernst suggested that they could try John for failing to provide an adequate level of care, which had resulted in Joan's death. The jury voted 10 to 2 to indict John for murder by omission. Mm deciding that he had willfully, intentionally, and culpably contributed to his wife's death because of his lack of attentiveness attentiveness, and refusal to take her to a hospital, which promptly resulted in her death. The state of Texas Texas had not previously indicted anyone on a charge of murder by omission. When John filed his wife's last will and testament shortly after her death, Ash quickly produced another will that he claimed had been written at the time Joan and John separated. This new will made Ash Joan's executor, left everything to Ash and asked that Ash and Rhea have custody of Robert. The will was signed by two of Joan's friends, one a former employee. John felt the will was a forgery and hired three handwriting experts to attest to that fact. It was determined that Joan's signature was different to that in a previous will, and that the will had been clumsily typed, replete with spelling mistakes and language more likely to be used by someone imitating legal terminology. That was a quote. (laughs) John asked the DA's office to investigate, but Cecil Haddon, who was serving on the grand jury at the time, suggested the matter be dealt with after the issue of Joan's death had been settled. Much later, in 1978, Joan's son, Robert Hill, contested the will, claiming that it was a forgery, but a probate judge, or jury rather, found in favor of Ash. 
Joan's death led to her husband John becoming the first person to be indicted by the state of Texas on the charge of murder by omission. Dr. John Hill, prosecutors argued, withheld medical care that could have kept Joan alive. Even the hospital he chose was substandard. (laughs) John's murder trial began on February 15, 1971, before Judge Frederick Huey. The case was prosecuted by ADA's McMaster and Ernst, while John was defended by Richard Haynes. Joan's friend and neighbor, Van Maxwell, was the first witness to give evidence and testified that shortly before her death, Joan had stated that she had given up on her marriage. (laughs) Anne and John married just three months after Joan's death. The marriage lasted less than a year. Upon their divorce, Anne was free to testify against John. Her performance on the stand was legendary. Anne recounted their courtship and told how John yearned to marry her, but Joan would not let go. Anne testified against John, claiming that after a few weeks of marriage, he had changed, erupting in violent tempers. Anne claimed to have seen three petri dishes in the bathroom of John's apartment when Joan first became ill. Anne recounted recounted seeing John growing something in the petri dishes that she described as having something red in them. John's explanation was that he was conducting an experiment. Anne testified that John was annoyed that she had asked about the petri dishes and was annoyed again the next day when she found some pastries that he forbade her from eating. (laughs) She said on the night of June 30th, 1969, John went into detail about how he had killed Joan and testified that John had confided in her that he had poisoned Joan with a concoction of human excrement and other forms of human waste. Yikes. Anne claimed that the cultures in the petri dishes which she had seen in the apartment were initially injected into pastries that he served to Joan. When Joan fell only mildly ill from the ingestion, she asked John for a remedy. John then added the cultures to an injectable drug, which he administered to Joan, telling her it was vitamins. I knew it. Yes. Uh, So, Anne also recalled that the same night that... John had told her this was the night that he tried to kill her by crashing his Cadillac into the bridge railing and then by trying to inject her with some toxin in a hypodermic syringe. <laughs> On cross-examination, Anne brought the trial to an abrupt end when she stated, in quotes, he told me he killed Joan with a needle. John's defense attorney Haynes called for a mistrial due to Anne's testimony, which Judge Huey agreed to after some deliberation. <laughs> so, John moves on. <laughs> on June 17, 1971, John married for a third time to Connie Lowsby. John's second trial was scheduled to begin on July 1971, but at the request of the defense, it was delayed multiple times and was finally scheduled to take place in November of 1972. <laughs> the murder of John Hill. What? What? On September 24th, 1972, just weeks before his second trial was to start, John was shot and killed by a masked gunman in front of his third wife, Connie, his mother, Myra, and 12-year-old son, Boot, in the entryway of his River Oaks mansion after returning from a medical convention in Las Vegas. While the Hills were driving home from the airport, an assailant had forced his way into the mansion and bound Myra and Boot in a back room. He taped their mouths shut, and this all happened about half an hour before John and Connie arrived home. Connie rang the home's doorbell, 
and was met by someone in a green Halloween mask who she initially thought was her stepson playing a joke. (laughs) The intruder grabbed Connie and forced her to the floor, saying, This is a robbery. John was soon on the floor beside her, but Connie was able to struggle away from the intruder and escape. She ran down the street calling for help, then heard shots being fired. A neighbor heard Connie calling for help, let her in, and called the police. When the police and an ambulance arrived, they found John face down in the foyer, with Boot standing over him. (laughs) With his feet and arms still bound, 12-year-old Boot had hopped from the back room at the sound of the gunshots. Shots. So adhesive tape had come loose from his mouth and he was crying. They've killed my daddy. There were no vital signs. And when John's body was turned over, ambulance attendants found that Hill's eyes, nose and mouth had been sealed shut with adhesive tape. The police noted this type of killing was prevalent in the local underworld. So the arrest of some other people (laughs) who we never heard of before. So at first, the investigators believed that Hill was a casualty of a botched robbery. Subsequent to John's shooting, Houston detectives Jerry Carpenter and Joe Gamino were called back to River Oaks after a neighborhood boy discovered John's briefcase, which had been stolen during the robbery and then abandoned. Under a bush nearby, Detective Carpenter also found a gun. (laughs) A ballistics expert determined that the bullets fired at John were handmade. Houston police then traced the gun to a local doctor. The doctor confessed that his gun had been stolen after he had enjoyed the services of two sex workers, (laughs) who then stole some money and one of his cars while he was asleep. The doctor had been about to leave to look for the ladies, in quotation marks, when he was called by a different sex worker called Dusty. He promptly invited her over, and when she left, she stole his gun. I'd say this guy's got a problem. (laughs) The doctor believed Dusty... She stole his gun... And his heart. Yeah. So the doctor believed Dusty's real name was Marcia McKittrick. (laughs) Detective Carpenter, a former vice squad officer, used his contacts to trace McKittrick and learned she worked for a pimp called Bobby Wayne Van Diver. A habitual criminal had recently been released from jail. Van Diver was picked up and arrested in April of 1973. He refused to cooperate with police. Eventually, he was positively identified by John's mother. Soon after, Van Diver confessed. He told police he had committed the crime for financial gain and implicated both McKittrick and a Houston madam called Lila Paulus as accessories to the murder. He claimed that the shooting was a contract killing for which he received $5,000. Van Diver stated, Paulus told me the contract was on a doctor, who had killed his wife, and that it was the wife's father who was wanting him dead. That was a quote. (laughs) The police interrogation lasted several days, and detectives learned that Paulus had first mentioned the contract to Van Diver in the summer of 1972. It didn't take long before rumors began to swirl outside of the Houston legal community and into Houston's high society and horse show world, suggesting that Ash had ordered the hit and paid Paulus, an acquaintance from the horse show world. Van Diver told police that after he agreed to kill John, McKittrick tried to make an appointment at John's office, but then learned he was away in Las Vegas. The pair subsequently traveled to Las Vegas to carry out the hit, but could not find John, so they returned to Houston. After Van Diver killed John, the couple fled to Los Angeles, 
but they quarreled frequently and returned to Texas separately in 1973. <laughs> On April 25, 1973, a grand jury voted to indict Van Diver and McKittrick for first-degree murder and to indict Paulus as an accomplice to murder. Van, Diver, Van Diver's trial was set for September 1973. In the meantime, D.A. Bob Bennett arranged for him to live at a motel with his wife, Vicky. Not Bob's wife, Vicky. Van Diver's wife, Vicky. <laughs> that sounded bad. So, she had found, Vicky, a job as a waitress, but Van Diver was under house arrest. And so, unless accompanied by someone from the D.A.'s office. Vicky was in the process of seeking custody of her children from a previous marriage. In June of 1973, Van Diver asked Bennett if he could travel to Dallas with Vicky while the custody case was heard. Bennett granted the request on the condition that Van Diver check in with him on a regular basis. Van Diver showed up as promised in September, only to learn that the trial had been postponed. Bennett reluctantly allowed him to return to Dallas. The trial for John's murder was then rescheduled for April 1974, but Van Diver failed to appear. He went on the run and moved to Longview, Texas. He adopted the alias J.C. Sheridan and tried to maintain a low profile. However, Longview police officer John Raymer grew suspicious of his town's newest citizen. By May, Raymer had discovered the man's first name was Bobby and confronted him at a cafe one evening. Van Diver pulled a gun, so Raymer shot and killed him. Elsewhere, McKittrick was also at large for several months. On September 21, 1973, McKittrick was arrested in Dallas after attempting to cash a forged payroll check. Ultimately, she corroborated Van Diver's story and also told Carpenter and Gamino that she had met Ash while staying with Paulus in 1972. Hmm. McKittrick claimed that Ash said he would do anything to get custody of his grandson, but the only way he could get custody was if John was dead. McKittrick told police that Ash and Paulus met frequently in the parking lot of Ben Taub Hospital. This was where the money was handed over. Ash also visited Paulus at her home on the day of the shooting to give her plans of the Kirby Lane Mansion as well as $7,000. <laughs> McKittrick was scheduled to be tried in 1974 alongside Paulus. However, Paulus's lawyer, Dick DeGuren, argued for Van Diver's evidence to be dismissed under the Sixth Amendment, which gives a defendant the right to confront their accuser. The request was granted. DeGarren also asked for McKittrick's evidence against Paulus to be ruled as inadmissible. While the request was granted, presiding Judge Price ruled that McKittrick's evidence could be used in the state's case against Paulus. <laughs> McKittrick's attorney, John Caperton, then sought consensus for McKittrick to enter a not guilty plea but accept the guilty verdict, which Bennett agreed to. <laughs> Ultimately, McKittrick turned state's evidence and testified against her former madam in a plea deal. Although she claimed that Paulus told her Ash had paid her to organize a hit on John, there was not enough evidence for prosecutors to ever charge Ash with anything related to John's death. McKittrick was convicted of being Van Diver's getaway driver and given a 10-year jail sentence. She was paroled after serving five years. <laughs> it's not over. We still have one more trial. As McKittrick was led from the court, Bennett asked her to give evidence against Paulus. 
She was initially reluctant to do so and continued to resist until the case against Paulus was heard on February of 1975. At the trial, McKittrick testified that Robinson had paid Paulus $25,000 to find someone to eliminate John and that in turn Paulus had paid Van Diver $5,000 to carry out the murder. Lila Paulus did have ties to Ash Robinson since their daughters were on the horse show circuit together and the families had known each other since the early 1960s. McKittrick and Ash both passed polygraph tests. The results indicated that McKittrick was being truthful when she stated that Ash had orchestrated John's death. <laughs> the results also indicated that Ash was telling the truth when he said he had nothing to do with John's murder. Bennett also produced evidence that Ash had taken out a private telephone number, which had been found written on a scrap of paper in Paulus's handbag. Huh. DeGaron portrayed McKittrick as a liar. The strategy was almost successful until Paulus deviated from the agreed testimony while on the stand. She tried to portray herself as a respectable widow who had taken pity on McKittrick rather than as a madam running a brothel. <laughs> After telling the court that she did not know Van Diver, Paulus claimed that she had taken pity on McKittrick allowed her to come into her home after a friend of her late husband had introduced them in the spring of 1972. Paulus commented on the difference between the two women's lifestyles, but claimed to know nothing of McKittrick's past. Bennett thought Paulus's comparison of the two women's lifestyle was unusual if she was indeed telling the truth and knew nothing about McKittrick. Bennett provided evidence that several years earlier, Paulus had been arrested on vagrancy and prostitution charges. Bennett attempted to use this to impeach Paulus's testimony. The arresting officer, Lieutenant Albright, testified and cast doubt on Paulus's credibility. Next, Paulus's daughter, Mary Jo Wood, was introduced as a surprise witness to give evidence against her own mother. Wow. Wood agreed to testify only after Bennett assured her that the DA's office would provide her with protection. The relationship between the mother, Paulus, and her daughter, Wood, had soured years previously. Wood testified that when she was young, Paulus owned several brothels in the red light district of Galveston's post office street and claimed that her mother had prostituted her out. Oh, no. When Wood was older, Paulus disapproved of a man Wood was dating and attempted to have them both killed. She then had Wood confined to a mental hospital. Wood had escaped from the institution and fled with the man to another state where they married. <laughs> Wood also testified that she and her mother met Joan through Diane Setgrass around 1963 through the horse show world. Through horses, they also knew, knew Joan very well. And while at Joan's home one Christmas season, the two women also met Ash. After making this acquaintance, she and her mother occasionally sat in the Robinson box at horse shows. When Wood visited her mother in December 1970, she claimed she was told by Paulus of a call from Setgrass saying that Ash wanted to hire someone to kill John. <sighs> Diane Setgast testified that she had known the Robinson family since 1952 and had met Paulus in 1957 or 1958. She denied telling Paulus that Ash wanted someone to kill John. Setgast, who had stayed at Paulus's home during the first murder trial for Hill, said she did have three telephone numbers for Ash. She believed she received the third number after John's murder and may have given this third number to Paulus. She also claimed she had seen Paulus in the company of Ash only once at Chatsworth Farm during the 1968 holiday season. Hmm. Ash claimed that Paulus loved Joan 
and her actions were born out of a sense of vengeance. Ash felt Paulus wanted justice for Joan, but denied any involvement himself, and throughout the trial maintained his own innocence. Paulus was convicted and given a 35-year sentence. Paulus later appealed her conviction. In October 1981, the Texas Court of Appeals reversed the conviction, ruling that there was not enough evidence to prove Paulus's guilt. McKittrick's evidence was deemed unreliable. Then, in May of 1982, this decision was overturned by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, reinstating the conviction and the original sentence. Civil suit. It never ends. Yeah. Believing that Ash had ordered John's execution, John's mother Myra, his wife Connie, and his son Boot launched a $7.6 million wrongful death suit. Ash denied responsibility for the shooting. Ash had said that he believed John murdered Joan and has been quoted as saying that he felt fiendishly vindictive toward his son-in-law. However, he always denied any responsibility for engineering the shooting. The highlight of the trial came when McKittrick directly linked Ash to the scheme to murder John. Hmm. Referring to the storybook crime, McKittrick described secret meetings between Ash and Paulus in the hospital parking lot in Houston, where Paulus received large amounts of money from Ash. Ash denied that the meetings ever took place. Although Paulus was sentenced to prison for participating in the murder plan, she refused to testify in the civil suit. The (laughs) trial vividly illustrated the tense relationship between John's surviving family and Ash. Although the two groups sat beside one another through the trial, they did not speak to one another at any time except while testifying. On October 21, 1977, following a seven-week hearing and two days of deliberation, A state civil court jury in Houston made a unanimous judgment to clear a 79-year-old Ash of any involvement in avenging Joan's death by conspiring in John's murder. The jury determined that monetary damage could total $840,000 for the Hills, but stated that since Ash was not guilty on the conspiracy charge, he could not be forced to pay. (laughs) John's lawyer, Richard Haynes, stated, Ash Robinson hasn't seen the end of it yet. During the wrongful death suit against Ash, an author, Thomas Thompson, who wrote the book Blood and Money about the story, offered an opinion that John likely did not have enough medical knowledge to kill his wife without leaving any evidence. (laughs) Thompson described plastic surgeons and orthopedists as the carpenters of the medical world and characterized internists and researchers as being the real thinkers of medicine. Robinson Hill was buried in Houston's Forest Park Westheimer Cemetery. John had placed a small, inexpensive marker at his wife's grave. (laughs) Later, Ash placed a monument in the cemetery, more befitting of Joan's status as an accomplished horsewoman. John is buried five miles away at Memorial Oak Cemetery. Following John's death, wife number three, Connie Hill, petitioned the court for custody of 12-year-old Robert. She was joined in filing the petition by John's mother and sister. There were more civil suits brought by John Hill's mother, Myra. This continued the rift between Robert and his grandparents, Ash and Rhea, that John had first started upon his marriage to Anne. The rift lasted more than a decade. (laughs) Connie and Robert lived at the Kirby Drive home following John's death until 1981, when Connie remarried. In 1976, journalist Thomas Thompson wrote Blood and Money, a book published by Doubleday and Company. So the book was a bestseller. 
Ash filed a $20 million libel suit in federal court against Blood and Money author Thomas Thompson and his publisher Doubleday and Company, claiming that the book wrongly accused Ash of complicity in John's murder. <laughs> Additionally, Anne filed a $3 million lawsuit against Blood and Money author Tommy Thompson and his publisher for describing her as, in quotes, provocatively dressed, heavily made up woman. <laughs> she alleged that marks were derogatory and constituted libel. The court agreed that the remarks were derogatory, but also determined that they were true. So therefore, the case was dismissed. <laughs> <laughs> so in total, burn. Yeah, in total, Tom Thompson had three libel suits filed against him over the book. William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, was in court as he had been optioned to direct a film version of the no novel. However, this film did not come to be. In 1981, a made-for-TV movie directed by William Hale was produced that gave a dramatic rendering of Joan's death. Called Murder in Texas, it starred Farrah Fawcett as Joan, Sam Elliott as John, and Andy Griffith as Ash. <laughs> In 1979, Ash and Rhea Robinson moved from Texas to Pensacola, Florida to distance themselves from the ongoing gossip and speculation on the death of their daughter. In November 1980, CBS TV reported that the medical evidence in the case had been re-examined and that John's lawyer, Richard Haynes, believed that Joan may have died of toxic shock syndrome, a condition associated with the use of tampons. However... Houston Medical Examiner Joseph Jakimski, I th I'm sure I've said his name different every single time, anyway, agreed that while some of Joan's symptoms were indicative of toxic shock syndrome, others were not. Consequently, the original cause of death remains unchanged. <laughs> the Hill's son, Robert, decided to sell the house in 1981 as Connie was getting remarried and he was heading off to college in Pensacola, Florida. It was felt the cost of maintaining the house was too much for him. In 1981, Robert also reconciled with his grandparents, who were also living in Pensacola. <laughs> Paulus died of breast cancer at the Gatesville prison on May 16, 1986. Ash died at age 87 on February 1985. Rhea died at age 86 in June of 1987. After leaving John, Anne lived in constant fear even after his death. Anne never believed it was John who was killed in September of 1972. There is always speculation that, as a plastic surgeon, John had faked his own death <laughs> and was living elsewhere with a new appearance and identity. Yeah, in Brazil. Yeah. Years following John's death, two Houston women traveling in Mexico were detained by a motor vehicle accident, and when the doctor arrived, both insisted that the bearded man was John Hill. <sighs> He was known to perform plastic surgery on prisoners, and Anne believed the man killed was a look-alike the doctor had created and arranged to stand in for him on that particular night. <laughs> of course, the stand-in did not know he was going to be killed. Although many scoff at some of Anne's claims, oddly, after shooting Dr. Hill, the assassin took time to wrap his face in duct tape, and no one denies John Hill was diabolical enough to do just about anything. <laughs> And also claimed that she would answer the phone at night to hear Rachmaninoff playing in the other end. She was convinced that the calls were from John. Despite her concerns, the coroner in Houston... Well, why not Rachmaninoff? I don't know. The coroner in Houston said he was certain the man autopsied was Dr. John Hill. <laughs> Anne returned to her former name, Anne Fairfield Kurth, 
and moved with her sons to Wimberley, Texas, just outside of Austin, where she ran an original clothing design shop. Anne died at the age of 59 of an aneurysm on January 13, 1990, at St. David's Hospital in Austin. The Robinsons, so the Robinsons sorry, left their considerable estate to their grandson, Robert. Robert became a lawyer and works as a senior state's attorney in Montgomery County, Maryland. <laughs> he refuses to discuss the case. His daughter is an accomplished equestrian. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. It's in the blood. Yes. So other media accounts of the story include investigative dis- investigation discovery TV show Behind Mansion Walls, which investigated the case in their June 2011 episode, The Thoroughbred Heiress. Not Thoroughbred. Saddlebred. <laughs> what do you guys know? A novel written by Ann Kurth called Prescription Murder ascertained that Hill had tried to kill her and alleged that he may have poisoned his first wife with bacteria-laced pastries. She also hypothesized that John faked his death and moved to Mexico. Uh, Retired Harris County DA Carol Vance discussed the case in his memoirs, Boomtown DA. And journalist Jerry Buck noted in an article preceding the film's debut on NBC that the face of the shooting victim had been battered and there were anomalies in the autopsy report. Huh. Okay, so I think that's probably it for this story. That was enough. <laughs> that's enough for that story. Yeah. That is quite convoluted. It was. From what little I, I heard at the beginning of the story, I immediately judged him guilty uh-huh. as a... Uh, that character said in Doonesbury, guilty, guilty, guilty. <laughs> and uh, I think, yeah, nothing nothing dissuaded me from that. No. And then pretty sure Ash is guilty as well. Yeah. 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 Pure retribution. Mm-hmm. And uh, two rights don't make it wrong, but it's hard to uh, blame him for being so passionate about... Uh, His loved ones. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if things had been done properly from the get-go... By any person. Mm-hmm. I mean, even that dumb maid Effie, who could, didn't seem to know how to use a phone to call an ambulance. <laughs> you know, she's calling like the parents. She's calling the husband. Mm-hmm. Call an ambulance. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's something that we're not used to here, where it's free to call an ambulance. But maybe in the states, you have to pay for these sort of services, and so there is some resistance in people's minds, depending on your where you fall and, mm-hmm. and you know what your upbringing was like, how you regard these things. You know. Don't call an ambulance. It'll set you back hundreds of dollars, you know. Yeah. And some of that is kind of, uh, you know, infects your brain. And so you don't, it's not something you think about doing, you know. But no, guilt all around. Mm-hmm. Yes. A sad story. Yeah, it's really squalid and unfortunate and petty because really he could have just divorced her. Yes. He was getting nothing out of murdering her, mm-hmm. you know, so it was really just a petty act on his part guess he wanted out yeah he wanted out and he was not being allowed to do what he wanted to do and so yeah yeah he got he got back at them sure did yeah that's awful mm-hmm. well let's this is a pretty long episode yes unusual for us mm-hmm. so let's jump quickly to letters so regular contributor louise wrote and i thought this was an inter- interesting exchange i'm going to read both letters here so i have to read your voice as well because you gave a long a long response <laughs> to this <Sorry>. that's fine <laughs> So it's interesting. Louise wrote to say, Good to hear you back for another season of Horse Mysteries. After listening to the story of Farlap and hearing about those horse deaths at this year's Kentucky Derby Week, I wonder why the sport is allowed to continue when there is still so much abuse. 
Is there an attitude of, it's just a few bad apples, or it's just the cost of doing business? I tried to find a stat for how many track deaths were, there are. One recent U.S. estimate was 1.25 deaths for every 1,000 starts. If the Vancouver Marathon had the same rate of mortality for its runners, then we'd see 25 competitors perish every year. It would be sad if as many underperforming and aging marathoners as resources were slaughtered rather than allowed to live out their days peacefully in retirement homes. And then Lisa, you responded. Mm -hmm. You raise a very valid point. I think the issue is multifaceted. To begin with, horse racing predates the release of Bambi and the rise of horses as companions slash pleasure animals. And so there is a view in the racehorse community, in particular of horses, as chattel, rather than of them being sentient beings or our oh, sorry, sentient beings and or our friends or pets. When I read about what happened to the horses that served in World War I, I'm always horrified, and the track comes a close second to that. I read some stats that the average life expectancy for a thoroughbred gelding is three. Mares and stallions can retire to the breeding shed, but there's not much in the way of a second career for a lame thoroughbred gelding, sadly. And what we're reading about now, all the high-profile breakdowns on the track, that's just the tip of the iceberg, as so many are called before they even get a chance to race. They don't stand up, go lame, they're not fast enough, etc. Many of these are put on trucks and head south to Mexico for the horse meat industry. Even Ferdinand, who won the Kentucky Derby, making his owner millions, suffered that fate. It's a heartless business indeed. Then you get the people who abuse pharmaceuticals to get that little bit more out of the horses, leading to catastrophic breakdowns. You'd think a hundred years past the time of Farlap, with their much greater medical knowledge, better diagnostics, and more advanced medical treatments, that we'd have the technology to create healthier horses. But sadly, that is not the case. And we see this phenomena in the horse show world as well. Then there are running services that are at issue. In North America, our horses get something called buck shins, like shin splints in human runners, that are the direct result of running on the harder dirt tracks we have in North America. I've read that buck shins are almost unheard of in other countries that run horses, mainly because most places use turf tracks, which are more forgiving. Santa Anita, in particular, has had some high-profile issues with breakdowns recently, and a lot of the focus has been on the track surface, which has been extensively reworked, but with much less success than they had hoped. In the sport of three-day eventing, there's been a very high rate of not just horse deaths, but also rider deaths. For a while, eventing was considered the most dangerous sport in the world based on human fatalities, and it's still right up there in uh, the top five or ten. There was a very good study done that attributed the high death rate of participants purely to attitude, to paraphrase the three-day eventing sport comes out of the military, which of course is associated with a tacitly accepted rate of attrition, and concurrently there's been a get-back-on-that-horse attitude to riding. A common phrase has been when someone falls off, horse or hospital, the implication being that if you're not badly enough hurt, then you need to go to the hospital or you need to get back on that horse. But while that goes very much against all the concussion protocol we have now, it's still a very pervasive attitude with many who ride in the past, and it continues to be, oh, sorry, many who rode in the past, and it continues to be inflicted upon the riders of today. Anyway, this study pointed out that in horse sports, we do have a high level of awareness of risk, but a low level of outrage about the risk. And as such, the risk is accepted as the cost of doing business, essentially. I could go on, but I won't. Thank you for raising a great point. Hmm. We want to read this. Okay, so we got a, a Facebook message uh, for, from Corinne, and she said that she's enjoying the podcast that she has listened to 
so far. And that's great. I hope you continue to listen, Corinne. Particularly this one where I was so stellar. Yeah, that was a really interesting conversation between you and Louise. Yeah, I did post the study because, uh, oh yeah, I did make a Facebook group called Horse Mysteries Podcast. Yes. And so I posted that study All right. on that. So, on that so Louise, if you're interested in reading more about it, you can go there. One thing I... One of the paradoxes of all of our discussion of these things is that for all the mistreatment of horses, whether in horse riding or show world, where we are now with horses, they would not exist to the degree they do if we weren't using them in in racing or in show and show and and riding for shows and stuff like that. You know, that's the paradox. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, without those industries, there's no reason for horses to exist anymore. We yes. do not use them on farms. Yeah. They don't pull plows, which is when they went, you know, they were once working animals that had probably a more brutal existence as working animals than they have now as pleasure horses, mm-hmm. even as even as horses used in, in, in on thoroughbred racetracks. And, you know, without that, without that industry, without that business element to it, there's n- absolutely no reason for horses to exist. And as land becomes less and less uh available and more and more expensive it's going to become less common for horses to be around and it's going to they're going to become rarer and rarer to the point of near extinction to what we have for them now that's that's just a reality mm-hmm. you know so for all the horrors of racing and stuff like that and i personally think that it's much less than it was in the past i'm sure it still happens but i think higher profile now we hear more about it probably. yeah yeah that's part of it too yeah. like in the past it was accepted as like you know as 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 Louise said, as part of the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and as you point out, our, our tacit acceptance of injury and, and, and fatalities in horse riding as, as the cost of the, the sport, mm-hmm. you know, and just those are... But, I mean, I could, you could say the same for car racing, football players, hockey players, all these sports. Yeah, any extreme sport. Any extreme sport has tremendous amount of personal risk and also, you know... and. The people involved in it and the people putting the animals in the horses, in these races, or in, even in the Iditarod, where you have husk, you know, dogs mm-hmm. pulling sleds and stuff like that, that's also a very brutal uh, situation. You know, the, you know it's a, it's a um, calculated risk. You know, we all take that calculated risk in our lives. We just don't acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. That when we get into a car, we're probably doing the most dangerous thing you could do in the world is a regular part of everyday life sit inside a uh, a piece of metal going at great speed amongst other pieces of metal going at great speed mm-hmm. you know like you think about cars the fact that they even exist is amazing you know it was f- probably just the fact that they were invented at a time when people were indifferent to each other's deaths that we still have cars yeah. around because once upon a time they were like major killers of people just randomly running people over all over the place because there was it was just absolute anarchy and we just accept that as a fact of life you know it's a calculated risk mm-hmm. because who wants to spend uh, two days walking to work? <laughs> and it's funny to me, like often in my job, which is kind of a, where I work is pretty not dangerous necessarily, but there's a, there's a lot of like ways that you do have minor injuries on yourself. Cause I work around sharp steel all day and I'll often get like cuts and stuff like that on my arms and you'll, and I'll say, you know, I'll say this to you and you're like, Oh, you know, it just, feels like you're working in like some sort of feudal torture to, you know whatever you mm-hmm. say but what's funny is i also got lots of injuries when i was a farrier and you're probably more accepting of that because that was what being a farrier is that mm, you take risks i didn't like that either i didn't like that either no. okay <laughs> okay i want to assume that then that maybe you had that sense of like well that's just horses you know you're working on horses no 
I, I don't like the idea of you getting hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear, because that means she's not going to poison me with a donut. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, dear, for that story. That was interesting. Interesting, but not good. Not good, no, because it's this, like, I mean, the past is the past, but it just feels like just like the most smallest following of any you know any kind of like rule would have saved everyone like a great deal of trouble mm-hmm. but you know everyone failed in that yeah. at a time when lots probably this happened more often than we'd like to think about just because you know influence and stuff went along well, i guess it still goes a long way today but it just feels like it would be less likely to happen now that there are more checks and balances in place to prevent doctors from just signing off willy-nilly on Thinking about it, I'll probably you could look in the paper and find tomorrow like a story like this, mm-hmm. where just things went all wrong and yeah. no one followed the rules and it was all bad. <sighs> <laughs> well, next story will be better. So next week's story is. It's called Operation Cowboy. Oh, that sounds fun. It is. It's not about a uh, cowboy doctor, is it? No. Okay, I thought we'd get more surgery. No. Nope. That's good. All right, everyone. Well, let's look forward next week. To Operation Cowboy. The only way this would be even better to me if it was called Operation Clown. But that's okay. Operation Cowboy. All right, we'll see you in two weeks, everyone. Thank you for listening to the show. Yep. Bye-bye.